0: Hi, Cultural Conversations listeners. Marcus Lund here. Today on the show, we talk with Greg Jones about his lessons learned while working as a lawyer in the tech industry. His business travels have taken him to Japan, India, Germany, and China, just to name a few. In our interview, we discuss the importance of taking a step back, suspending judgments, and striving to communicate effectively with international colleagues. Greg, can you tell us tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what's your educational background, and what has been your career path?
1: Sure, great. I'm happy to do it. So um, I was born in California, really grew up in Colorado, had some computer programming experience in high school there in Colorado, and then went to BYU for a year, and from there, after being at BYU for a year, uh, served a mission to Argentina for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'll just say the church from now on, but... Um, and that's just a two year experience where um, you're meeting people and teaching them about the church. And so you meet a lot of people, speak a lot of Spanish, and eat a lot of food. <laughs> just, <laughs> just living there it was a great experience. Then I returned uh, to BYU um, after exploring around a bit for different majors and such. I ended up getting a computer science degree. I really got that as kind of a fallback because I had some strength in computer science, but I had wanted to go to law school. In retrospect, I don't think I really understood what it meant to go to law school, but whatever, that's what I had intended to do. So I got the computer science degree. Um, in, in case I needed to delay going to law school or had change of plans, I hadn't really thought of making it a, a major emphasis in my career. I was a professional student basically. I got a couple of minors, one in political science and analytical thinking, minor in philosophy. I did the honors program, artificial intelligence thesis and kind of social arts in spanish. Like I said, I as a professional student, but law school pretty much cured me of that. <laughs> And so that was a very important experience, and I learned a lot there. I went to BYU Law School that's three years, and after my first year, I worked the Summer for Colorado Rural Legal Services Migrant Hispanic Farm Worker Division. During the last year of law school, the third year, I actually got found a job during the year working for Novell, which was an extremely successful and growing software company, networking software company that was based in Provo and really growing rapidly then. Joined Novell as an attorney in 1992 and worked there in two. 2011. with had a lot of international travel and worked in intellectual property transactions, uh, negotiating with major companies, and being able to travel quite a bit. When Novell was sold in 2011, I joined a firm called TechLaw Ventures, which is in Lehigh, Utah, which has become this incredible technology center. And My firm, TechLaw Ventures, unsurprisingly focus on technology. So I try to focus in the area of information technology or software, uh, legal transactions and legal issues. So that's what I do today. What countries did you visit while working for Novell? Yeah, at Novell, I visited Japan, India, Germany, South Korea, China, Hong Kong. At the time, I think was still um, when I went there. I don't. I think I can't remember. It was, I think it may have been pre nineteen ninety seven before it had been handed back to China, and then Canada and Switzerland. I thought I thought I mentioned that in preparation for today. I listened to portions of two podcasts and, and my experience, my, I'm going to share it today is a little bit different. It's not going to be a super deep exposure or experience in one culture, but instead maybe more general lessons from having interacted with colleagues and in, in affiliates of Nobel who are in other companies or just in general lessons from international business travel. So it's not going to be like the, the deep dive that some of the other presenters have given. Mine's kind of more of that nature and and I hope it will just be useful to people like people like myself because the fact that I've, I'm sharing lessons learned means I needed to learn stuff. There were realizations I had that I didn't have before I did the international travel. So hopefully that will be of help to somebody and help um, foster understanding in international business interactions people have with each other. If I share some experiences where I learned something, maybe someone else can kind of learn that vicariously and hit the road running a little bit better than I did. Uh, what are some of the lessons you learned uh, while serving as a missionary in Argentina? I had several Argentine companions. I remember one evening I was talking to one of my companions from Buenos Aires, and it's kind of embarrassing for me to say this right now. But my mindset at the time was, you know, I'm from this. I'm from the country that sent a man to the moon. We have we're high tech, uh, you know. So obviously, there's really, you know, our schools must be the best. You know, that was just kind of like my my mindset. I remember this one evening my companion was telling me about his experience in his school in Buenos Aires, in particular in areas of the humanities, uh, literature, writing, things of that nature. And uh, when I look back, he was very patient in simply sharing with me his experiences because as I listened to him talk about his school and he wasn't really doing it in a debating fashion, he just let me draw my own conclusion that in reality, there were some awesome schools there in Buenos Aires and really just helped me realize, okay, so each of us come from countries that have done some great things. The United States has accomplished some awesome things. I love my country, but it's a mistake to think that my country is superior in every way. That evening really helped hammer home the point for me that every, every country, every culture has great things about it and we can all learn from each other's cultures. What are some of the other lessons you learned while in Argentina another experience that I had there was um, that when I when I got to Argentina and got to the airport a SESA, the international airport I was really pretty shocked to see that a lot of the, the guards there had submachine guns and were dressed in military uniforms and, I, and you know we we're not down there for political purposes and uh, and so the church doesn't give us a lot of information about things like that um and so I just said that's kind of different and as I was assigned to different areas in Argentina, and this was in the late this was in the early 80s, there would be posted in front of police stations, um police officer there with a submachine gun. And um if I took a picture and it was in, even if I wasn't directly taking a picture of a police station, if the if the person posted at that police station thought that that station might be captured by my photo they would just wag their finger at me and 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 very emphatically indicate to me that is not allowed you do not take pictures of these places and so that was understood pretty quickly and that just seemed extremely odd to me quirky and odd and what are they so worked up about you know and so then flash forward to uh, when we have 9 11 united states and here in Utah, you know, four or five months after 9-11, we were hosting the Olympics. And I was living here in Utah. And I remember after 9-11 happened, um, reading an article in the paper where there were some people who, quote, unquote, had like a Middle Eastern appearance. They were seen taking pictures of, of public buildings in the Salt Lake area. And there was great concern because we just had this incredible Incredibly horrible terrorist event with all of this devastation, and now all of a sudden people are sensitized about pictures being taken of public buildings. I did a little reading some time after my mission. I came to learn that in Argentina they had very significant domestic terrorism problems in the 1970s. Some really, really difficult things happened down there, and and so all of a sudden I realized this thing that just seemed like so quirky and weird and unreasonable. Why were they so concerned about me taking a picture of a police station? Well, they had very good reasons uh, to be sensitive. I could understand why they would feel that way, or why they would, you know, why there would be anxiety, or why there would be concern. So I guess that's just another lesson for me. Although that one wasn't until years later that I learned it, was to say when you go into a place, you go into a culture. When there are things that are strange. Oftentimes, there's a very good explanation as to why this thing that looks so strange to you is being done. And so it's important, I think, to to suspend judgment a bit and, you know, find out respectfully, you know, what why is there this sensitivity here? So that, that was, I think, it took a long, that was kind of a long-term lesson, but it's a lesson that I learned from my experience there. Okay, I guess another experience that I had is at the, the, the end of my mission, uh, the the Falkland Islands War, the, um, the, the as the Argentines say, the the Malvinas, you know, I was there for that that conflict between Argentina and Great Britain, and was able just to witness all of that. That was to to be in a country that's at war like that was just a just a very impressive experience for me. And one of my takeaways, without getting any details, is just. You know, there's no way, especially as a as a as a missionary there, I'm not reading the newspapers, I'm not watching the news. You get impressions and you have ideas about, gee, that seems why is this happening this way? Why is that? And I just learned I was there with a specific purpose for a specific organization. Stick to that. Don't start talking about politics. Um, don't don't go venturing off into these things when you're there in that capacity as an individual representing whatever organization that you're with. Um, And I don't want to really get into more details than that, but that was a lasting lesson that I took away from that experience. And lastly,
0: on Argentina, what are some of the cultural aspects from Argentina that you admire most?
1: Well, that's a country that's had a lot of um, trial and a lot of um, difficulty in a, in a variety of ways. And I, I just, I admire people's perseverance and their ability to take joy in parts of their culture, their asados, their barbecues, their, their soccer, their so many different aspects of what they have there. I just, I, 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 admire, I admire the people for, for all of those types of qualities. I could give a more thoughtful answer to that, but I think those are just a few of the things. All right. So let's move on to Japan. Okay. Uh, What are some of the lessons you learned while working in Japan? So in Japan, I I went there probably a total of 12 to 14 times. I was assigned to uh, make sure that the agreements between our Japanese joint venture and our U.S. parent company were all in order and maintained with respect to technology and intellectual property rights. So I was there quite a bit. The first time I went there was a, um, I had I had a real advantage in the sense that one of my roommates from BYU has served a mission in Japan. And it just so happened that when I made my first trip to Japan, he was in Japan working for a Japanese company. Um, he had continued with his studying Japanese and getting an MBA um, after his mission. And so he had both business experience and the Japanese language. And he was working as the assistant to the president of a Japanese company. And it, so at the end of that first week in Japan, Pan, he and I did some sightseeing together, and I was able to talk about some of the things that I had seen. One of the things that I saw there when I was just taking in the, the, the two-hour limousine bus ride in from the Narita Airport to the hotel was um, as our limousine bus made stops at four or five hotels where international business people would stay, and one of those parking lots, the parking lot was essentially empty. It was like six o'clock, and this this man in a uniform with a, and a whistle and a flashlight came came out and was very rigorously using his whistle and that flashlight to direct this limousine bus into a place to park. And it was quite evident that this is a routine bus. It comes in here regularly. There There was nothing else going on in that parking lot. I was completely mystified. And so when I um, when I got to talk to Dave, my former BYU roommate, about some of the things that I had seen, I told him about that. And he he asked me a question. He says, "Well, was he accomplishing anything by doing that?" And I said, "I just really don't think so. I, I can't see what he was accomplishing at all." And then he just asked the question, "Is it possible that it may have seemed to someone that what he was doing was of some value?" I said. Oh. I guess, maybe, but if if it's possible that someone may perceive that, and he said, that's all that matters. And the general lesson that he taught me was that in Japan, appearance can be very important. Um, The other thing that I experienced I had with Dave is uh, one of my Japanese colleagues had kind of um, helped me during the course of the week and was there as we were going to meals and dinners and so forth. And she was there the the day that I actually started sightseeing with Dave. So she met Dave, and then she said goodbye. And she had this like concerned expression on her face. And so I I said, Dave, and I she looks like she's like really anxious about something. What do you have any thoughts about that? And he he and then he basically just said that when the U.S. visitors come to visit um, a company in Japan, that typically. Uh, the Japanese company uh wants to heavily influence what that person experiences. make sure they have a positive experience, make sure that they highlight and enhance for that person the positive things that there are about that company and so um uh, the moment that I um left you know my colleague there standing, she was very uncomfortable because now she had no control over what I was going to see uh and my friend Dave told me of his experience where he was given similar responsibilities and one time when the the us visitors were there um as this group was walking from place to place they got separated because of because of like when the elevators were arriving and it was like a panic for for people to kind of get get repositioned and so forth and I have to say that in my 12 to 14 times that I went to Japan, it's not like they were hiding something. You know, it's not like, um, okay, now now that I was footloose and fancy free, I could discover all of these things. You know, that they didn't want me to see. It wasn't like that at all. I, you know, still had completely positive impressions of Japan and 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 just super high impressions of everything that I experienced there. But they're just, I think, very into presentation and excellence. And and once I was outside of, of my colleague's influence, she wasn't able to assure that that was the quality of experience that I was going to have when I was there. So that was a, that was another one of my experiences, and similar to this theme of appearances. That also, unlike a lot of Asian countries, um, in Japan, the office workers are expected to work very long hours, and or, or a better stated perhaps is like be in the office very long hours. Yeah, because it's really hard for them to be productive. If you're in the office 10, 11 hours every day, they're not necessarily going to get more work done than Americans will. But they need to give um, you know that impression. And even if they got the same amount of work done, if they were to go to their boss and say, "Look, you know, this is how much work there is to get done. I've gotten more than that done today. I'd like to go home now." That wouldn't be cool. In terms of like, so what do I learn from that um, as a practical matter? I guess one of them is just to Understand the situation that your colleagues and your coworkers are in, what types of pressures they're under, what types of expectations there are. Maybe that can help you as you're working with them to, to be of support to them and, and, and just understand kind of where they're coming from. Did you have any issues communicating while in Japan? Well, generally not um, in the sense that um, kind of what I discovered is that Japan being the first place I went to for really international business travel is, and I don't know, just my own way of vocabulary for thinking about it, kind of like there's just English business corridor, which is a network of um, international airports, the routes from those airports to the hotels where international business people stay, and the pass from those places to offices and places of business. And all of these kind of corridors. All along the way there's English being spoken and all of a sudden you start feeling perhaps overly comfortable, you know, all oh, this international thing's not that hard, you know, you can, you know, there's no you know, no problem, you know, c- communicating in English. And that was generally my experience. And so my colleagues, um, like for example, Nobel Japan, they they the mo- a lot of them spoke just great English. I never, ever, sometimes you have to slow down a little bit to understand each other but generally very impressed with their English, much better than my Spanish, for example, I would say. But I did have an experience where uh, I, I tacked some personal travel onto the end of my trip there. I took the, the bullet train from t- Tokyo to Osaka to visit a friend of mine, and I got off of the train, and all of a sudden I I found myself on the platform, and my friend wasn't there. And all of a sudden the thought just crossed my mind, what have I done? You know, And I realized that I had become overly comfortable. Um I had just had no problem communicating in English. And all of a sudden I realized in that moment that if my friend had not appeared, I had no contingency plans. I had I had not thought through anything of what I would do to communicate. Obviously one way or another I wouldn't have died there, but it would have been um not it would have been a difficult situation. And in the end, I met my friend on another, just another platform. So when I was there looking for my friend at the train station in Osaka, this man came up to me in a suit, a Japanese man, and he just says to me, excuse me, sir, may I help you? And I just said, as a matter of fact, yes, I'm looking for my friend and I I, I really need some help. And he just walked away. He turned his back and just walked away. And it was quite evident to me that all he had wanted to do was practice his English and as soon as he saw that he had successfully articulated his sentence and he was understood, he was done. He had he had no interest whatsoever in helping me out, you know. And so I think that that's kind of a lesson there that you know we should actually, if we can, if we're positioned to help people who are struggling in a new culture, it's good for us, I think, to try to to help people. If we're here in the United States and we see and we have visitors. And they need a helping hand. I mean, I think it's just a nice thing to do to help them out. You know, why not? As we wrap up
0: with the Japanese experiences, what do you like about Japanese culture that you wish Americans would implement?
1: Well, when I, when I traveled to Japan and I've had a situation, I should put it, maybe put it this way. I traveled once to Japan after having been in some other countries, um, and, and that are somewhat stressful to travel in. And when I was going to Japan, I just said to myself, I'm going to a place that's clean, that's safe, that has great food. I'm just going to this like this oasis where I can just I, I, I won't have stress anymore. I can just relax. And and my colleagues, um, they're very um very conscientious, the the people I interacted with in my international business, um, j generally speaking very conscientious, very respectful and and diligent you know hard workers, you know so I can't say that that's a profile of all of Japan. I can just say that in my international business experience, the types of folks who who I met who were in who would be at my counterparts that's that's what I experienced, and those are things that I really admired. So we're done with Japan. Let's go on to India. What were some cultural insights you had while working there? I I should just say, so I've I've had a lot of interaction with people from other countries and a lot of people from China and from Japan. And so when there are people from those countries who are learning English, if they're not speaking perfectly well, I can understand them pretty well, even if their English is pretty broken because I've just had a lot of experience. In Novell, um we were one, I think, one of the early earliest companies to have a development center in India. And as a result of that, we had a number of our software developers who had been had, had been having interaction with their Indian counterparts for five, six, seven years. When I started having interaction with um folks in India, um I I had I I hit it without having you know that type of experience. And so I could sometimes go into meetings where the and the Indian accent was not one that I was accustomed to. And at times, it was evident to me that the person speaking, that their grammar was quite good, and the, and and their the structure of their sentences was good. I just couldn't understand the accent. That was a, that was the skill that I had not developed. And these the software developers, the U.S. software developers, they had no under no problem understanding our Indian counterparts when they were speaking, but I did, and I was not having enough experience to develop the skill to really start, you know, just understanding their cadence or or, or, or their speaking. On one one trip to um, to Bangalore, we were uh, I went with a big uh, contingent from Novell and the local management team introduced themselves to us. There were like six people, and each of them um, introduced themselves, and their first name was, for each person, their, their first name was like four or five syllables combined in an order I'd never heard before, and likewise their last name. And so there were like all of a sudden five, six people. They had just introduced themselves to me, and I had no ability to call them by name. And I, I felt very uncomfortable about that. And you know, and, and just it's just something so basic like that, I think, knowing what to call somebody or if they do expect to be called by that four or five syllable name, then to make some effort um, is evident, you know, and and I reflect back on that experience. And I guess I just wasn't maybe prepared. And and I just what what if I could go back in time, I would do something, some additional work on my part, because I would have had access to their names in advance of the trip um and, and so forth and based on what I know now I would have gone back and I would have I would have studied those names. I would have perhaps communicated with them directly and just said, How do you like to be called? Uh because that's just just a, a basic thing that creates awkwardness if you don't know how to address somebody. And there was like a, an intellectual challenge there. I just wasn't capable of remembering all of those syllables of their names. And so that's something I look back on, I just wish I had done better on. Um and put more effort into kind of another opportunity that I had um, while I was there. Is one of these trips when it was I, w- I stayed over a weekend in India uh, learning from my colleagues that it's impossible to go up to the Taj Mahal. It takes some money, it takes some effort, but I thought this would maybe be maybe almost like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I went up to the Taj Mahal, had to take a flight up, and then typically, really in India, you don't drive. You get a driver, You know, and so I had a driver who took me from Delhi to Agra Agra, where the Taj Mahal is and and, um, and that experience was pretty interesting. We had conversations and he told me about his thoughts on arranged marriage and I never quite heard it explained that way, but he just said, look, love marriage is based on emotion. Emotion can change. Arranged marriage is not. Arranged marriage is stable, you know, so I don't think he sold me on going out and having someone arrange a marriage for me. I know he didn't, but... But uh, but at the same time, I came away, you know, really understanding better, you know, his perspective, and and so I guess it's just it's just so valuable when you have opportunities like that, like on a long drive with somebody like my driver, and and just to start, you know, hearing these types of uh, perspectives from someone who's in the culture. I think another thing I'll I'll mention is um, when I first went to the first time I went to India. I went to India three or four times. The first time I went there, I was just amazed to uh, traveling in the streets. And again, none of us are driving. We're all using a taxi or a driver. But the street is just maybe three or four lanes wide that you can put three or four cars in side by side. But that's not how the lanes are being used. Um, there are bicycles. There are mopeds. There are motorcycles. There are maybe a, possibly even horses, trucks, um, every kind of view you could imagine, and they all intermingle, and it just flows. I mean, the, the closest analogy I could make to that would be kind of like chaos theory, where you see a, swar- a, you know, a flock of birds just flying around in these patterns, and there are all these birds and not colliding with each other for some reason. That's I'm sure they have accidents there. You know, but I didn't I didn't see one. And, you know, and like one of the things that just impressed me, i never forget it is in all of that chaos. I remember I saw this one family, a very nice young family, very well dressed. Look at like they were going to some type of a formal event. The husband is in a very nice suit and the wife was in a very nice dress. And they have they have three or four kids and they're on like a moped. And the dad has one kid under his arm in front of him there are two kids between the mom and the dad and then the then the, the wife is holding one kid on her hip on her arm and that just it just blew my mind and then you look at them and to them it's completely completely normal uh, It so happened on this trip to uh, when i went to the taj mahal something happened uh, all of a sudden when i was when i was going from the hotel to the office All of that stuff, it was all there exactly the same, the way it had always been, the way it had always appeared, but it looked completely normal to me. There was nothing about it that seemed interesting because it was out of the ordinary. It just all of a sudden, some some switch had flipped and that just seemed as normal as could be. I was kind of amazed myself. I couldn't make myself think that it was unusual. It just seemed completely normal. I was inside of the culture. When I came back from the Taj Mahal, it was a Sunday morning, and I knew that, and I had met some senior missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. I had bumped into them because I went to church the the Sunday that I arrived for that trip. I made it a point to go to the local church meeting, uh, found transportation. I met these senior missionaries, found out about this regional conference being held at a hotel. So I went to this regional conference, met the senior missionaries again. And we'd had an, another a little excursion we had done with them earlier in the week as well, um, but then we went to their apartment and we we're, were visiting. These are two American um, retired uh, retired couple, and um, and there was a young man from India who was evident would spend a lot of time with this these senior missionaries. He's probably like twenty twenty one. I got I think maybe he was preparing himself. Maybe he wanted to serve a mission. When we were done visiting that day. He just says, hey, I'll give you a ride back to your hotel. And so I just said, sure. And so he had this little motorcycle and, um, you know, and I had these books I was carrying with me and I got on the motorcycle behind him. And we were driving along. And all of a sudden I said to myself, what am I doing? You know, and the streets, the streets right when I got on that with him, they weren't like that scene that I had described before where they weren't that full and everything. Well, I just uh, thought to myself, oh my word, I mean what like what if we got an accident or something? I mean, what am I, what am I going to explain to my company and, and everything? And I think it was kind of cool to be inside of the culture and find yourself that way, but don't feel too comfortable, you know, because all of a sudden I realized I'd kind of I'd put myself in a situation where it wasn't like the most hazardous thing you could ever do in your life, but it wasn't necessarily the safest area of transport as well. And kind of interesting, when we got back to the hotel, they wouldn't let him in. You know, we went into, he was going to drop me off and they made us go into like to the servant's entrance um, around the back or something. So that was, that was another experience in India. Um, what was the food like? Well, the food there, if you like Indian food, the food is great. You know, and there were a lot of my colleagues at Novell, especially some of the software developers who had spent been working with their counterparts there for a long time they they just really liked the Indian food so if you like indian food it's it's what you see in an Indian restaurant you know and and if you like it, it's great. I just have never to me Indian food is an acquired taste I never quite acquired it um you know and so and so that was kind of my my experience with the Indian food. It was interesting um immediately upon my return to the United States when I was in my office. I was visited by a guy named he went by JV and um I believe he may have actually pulled out a little a little bit of a little tin of of his food and then I found out that he had he had packed cuz he he came to be there for a week he had packed all the food he was going to eat that week with him and he told me you just can't get good food here <laughs> you know and and which was just i think fantastic uh you know just in terms of we were both experiencing the same thing just from opposite directions and just a perfect illustration of how you know his food is great and i think my food's great you know but we didn't like each other's food at all and that's okay <laughs> so let's move on to germany what did you learn uh while working in germany one one thing that I started to do I've I've mentioned it in some of the other stories is it, um, I started to realize that through my business travel I was being sent to some places that were super interesting, but what I found I had been doing uh, by and large was just going on the trip, taking care of business, going home. And I said, you know and so then I started making a special point uh, where possible to tack on to the end of my trip uh, some extra travel time. And I would get travel books and so forth and study and say, "What do I want to see while I'm here?" One of my trips to Germany, the place that we were going, I, I I'd always been very interested in World War II. Um, you know, as a, as, even when I was like in junior high school and high school, there was a, a a British documentary series on World War II on Saturday afternoons, and I would I would watch that. And I was deeply impressed by it. And so I've always been interested in that. And I I learned that this this city we were traveling to in Germany, there's a lot of history there. And there were things that I wanted to see. And so, but I realized that I did not have complete control of my itinerary at all on that trip. I had just one or two spots where I might fit in some travel. And the first spot was the day I got off the plane. I just and I knew that I'd have to make a that if the if the plane was on time and I made a beeline, there were these one or two particular places I really wanted to see. Now, um, I I mentioned to some others I was going to do this, and so we we all went to these places. But I, I was I was yeah I was I was really um, concerned when I learned that the next a day or two after that, that our German counterparts that we were visiting had found out. We had made that visit and they were very unhappy, you know, and I, I, I think they they just had the impression we were not having a respectful or appropriate, you know, regard for the place that we were visiting and the sensitivities that they might have. And so I had a so I had a couple of lessons from that that I learned. And one is to try to anticipate if something might be sensitive And so, and if you're going to, and if you want to visit a place that may implicate those sensitivities, uh, decide, is it worth, you know, can you go there in a way that's not going to, you know, create those types of, of concerns, especially when my primary purpose in going there was for the company that sent me there. So I should not be doing something that's going to in any way create friction or, sensitivities in the way that we're interacting with each other and then the other aspect of it was that if you're going to go to some place and you think that you can manage it and you can go there in a way that's not going to create these these issues make sure that the the people that you're inviting with you likewise are sensitive to those things Um, so that that was one of the one of the lessons that I learned it's not like the primary aspect of my experience working in Germany because I there were so many Things about the work itself and my colleagues and how great they are, but that was just one of the things that stands out about maybe a mistake that I made and and something that I can do differently. Are there any other fun experiences and stories you have from
0: visiting other countries?
1: Uh, on one, one of my business trips, I went to Japan to participate in meetings of, a, of an industry organization that my company belonged to, and so I was the representative of my company and there was a a counterpart from one of our competitors was part of that same industry group, so we were there in Tokyo together, and then we compared our travel plans, and it turned out we were both going to be in China, in Beijing, and so then we and we were we were not at the same hotel, but close by, so we decided I had some things I want to do on Sunday, including going to church there in Beijing, and and but we were both available Sunday evenings, so we decided to get together, my my colleague from our competitor, and so. Um, we identified the restaurant we wanted to go to, and then we got out. We, we, he came to my hotel. Then we went out. We, we kept trying to hail a taxi, and I don't know what was going on. We had no success, and we were just struggling. And then this this guy came by in a rickshaw. Um, I think it was probably like one of those bicycle rickshaw type things. And so we got on, on into his rickshaw. It became evident as he was driving us around that he really didn't know where the restaurant was that we were going to. And he called someone up on his cell phone. And he's speaking, obviously, in Chinese, and we don't speak Chinese. And, and then finally, you know, like I showed him a card or something, and then he got turned around. But we were in that rickshaw like for a real long time, and it started getting dark outside because when we left, it was still light. And then we ended up coming, we ended up going to this restaurant. When we get to the restaurant, uh, then we, we ask him how much money this is going to cost. This is now. This is kind of funny because these are two lawyers take on this rickshaw ride. We didn't ask the guy in advance how much he's going to charge us, and so um, we get there and he tells us what whatever the amount of money was, and it was like a lot of money. And I think maybe because he regarded himself as more than transportation, it was kind of like maybe a cultural experience, some entertainment oh, or something. Tour. Yeah. And so and and so my colleague got got really upset understandably so, but was, I just kind of said to myself, look, you know, he got us, you know, he got it, the two lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like lesson learned. We should have asked him in advance. He he got us, you know, it's not the end of the world. Just, you know, we should just pay him. So it's kind of, there were, there were two things there. One, I think that's sometimes that's just where you are. You just have to realize, you know, you got me. But the second thing that was just so that because you asked, we talked about how funny it was quite evident that the that this man who had taken us on the rickshaw ride had extremely limited English. I mean, I think he knew how to ask for money, and that may have been about it. And my my colleague from my competitor, um, started talking very very loudly and very very slowly so that the person could understand him, which was just absolutely hilarious because it it didn't matter whether he what what speed he spoke at, he was not going to be understood. So, uh, you know, it's just it's to me, that's just kind of a that's kind of a story where it's just kind of like, look, we were the we're the ones that screwed up. And um, sometimes you make mistakes and you just have to kind of move on. And so that's that's kind of one of the experiences that we had. Another another China related one is um, in the 2000s, there was a year that I spent in Boston. Uh, my my company provided an apartment. It was a temporary was one year more or less assignment to be there. And during that time, we had a conference for our department, uh, for everyone worldwide from our legal department. One of the things we did earlier in the week is we went to a seafood restaurant. I was seated next to my boss. I ordered the lobster and they bring the lobster to me. And so I start methodically trying to eat this lobster, you know, and it's the whole shebang. It's the whole lobster. It's got the claws and everything. And I start like sawing into the body and my boss and it's kind of going, going where's this taking me? I'm kind of wondering. I'm not seeing anything in there I really want to eat. And my boss just says, Greg, Greg, you, nobody eats that. Don't worry about it. Nobody eats that part. So I go, okay, so got it. People don't eat the body of the lobster. So then we end up having the week of the, of our of our conference. Um, everyone goes to their, where they came from, except for the international folks stay a day or two over. And so um, the international folks who are still in town go on this go on this drive out to the beach up north and so i so I join them and we go to a seafood restaurant that's right there you know on the shores. I end up being seated next to a colleague from China and she orders a lobster and so as they, they bring out the lobster and um, of course now i'm a world expert on how what you how you eat lobsters and she starts going into that body and digging into it and i go i go wendy wendy says no nobody eats that. And she just immediately just says back to me, but that's the best part. (laughs) And so that was just another one of those interesting, kind of those fun food culture things that once again, is like, um, you know, one culture, the the thing that's delicious is not delicious at all to the other culture and vice versa. And it's just, just, it was just kind of a, a, a fun experience with her. And another one, I had I went to South Korea just one time, and part of that trip to South Korea, we were able to go to the Demilitarized Zone. But this didn't happen while I was there. I learned about this while I was there, but I learned about how the on, on that in that DMZ where this where you know you've got you've got on one side you've got North Korea, on the other side you've got South Korea. And on the North Korean side, they literally will put up these Potemkin villages, which are just, you know, facades of buildings, just trying to project this image to the South Koreans of how great things are because we have these buildings and things, and they're just obviously fake, you know. And then uh, the other, th- and then the, the the North Koreans will put up, you know, loudspeakers on their side of the DMZ, and they'll just be. Blasting patriotic music and propaganda speeches and stuff as, <laughs> across the DMZ to the South Koreans. But the thing that really, really caught my attention was how one at one point the South Koreans had put up a flagpole. North Koreans saw that, so they didn't put a flagpole. Was, I don't know what the distance – I can't remember what the measurements were, but let's say it was like five or ten feet taller than the South Korean one. So, well, so then the South Koreans put up one that was, you know, 10 or 20 feet taller than that. And they just kept going and going and going. I'm not sure. I can't remember exactly how this thing came to an end. And what meaning does any of that have? And it's just interesting in this world, some of the absurd, some of the absurd things that are going on that we as human beings will get in a situation. And if you if we can just kind of take a step back say, this makes no sense whatsoever. And I'm sure that there are things that we do in in our U.S. culture where there are others who look at us and just say, can you guys just take a look at yourselves? Can you believe that this is what you're doing? And and, and maybe, you know, it takes someone else from outside the culture to point it out and say, yeah, I think you're, yeah, you're probably right. Just another fun one was on one of the trips to Japan, we came back. I think we, this particular trip, I think we traveled back separately for some reason, my American colleague and I. And I was already back, and then my American colleague was in the airport up in Portland, but he ran into our, our Japanese counterpart from our from our affiliate there in Japan, our, our joint venture actually in Japan. And it was like, so what? What are you? What's going on? You know, what are you, what are you doing? Oh, I'm 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 going to go to you know the headquarters of the company here in America. Well, well, you know, what what do you need to do? Oh I have this document needs to be signed. It's like well we, we were we were right there with you. We you could have just you could have just sent it with us. You know, but he there was but I I, I think that his it was like some document which for some reason in the that Japanese business context it was gonna, a document that's going to be signed by the head of the overall company and they wanted him to go and Go through that formality of of him being there to present it, not just something that's sent through the mail or something like that. My my American colleague would joke then and and would call him the human FedEx uh, for having just you know gone and done that. I think I think we shared that with 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 our Japanese friend. I think I think he got a kick out of it. So that's the that's the Japanese business culture doing something to us seems just really strange and humorous. And again, I just have to say that I'm sure that there are things that we can't even see that our counterparts in other cultures look at us and they just have a good laugh. Great. Well, do you have any last bits of advice? I guess my only – I think there's a general theme is just to say, you know, be very suspicious of any assumptions that, that, you, that you have going into a situation when you're working with, you know, international um, colleagues, be willing to suspend judgment when things look like they're kind of odd or different, and so forth. Just realize, well, they may be different. That doesn't necessarily mean they're not as good, or there's anything wrong with them. And and there might be a lot of you know good things that you that you can learn. And and I think just also that in an international context, like I gave some of the examples with language, that effort and work can make a difference in terms of helping to have. Good experiences, especially like a situation like mine, where I'm a traveler um, who, from time to time, has interactions with people from other cultures or with sub affiliates. I, you know, I'm not in a situation where I'm going to master master the language. Like the like, for example, I alluded to these other podcasts where there was someone who was just way into the Japanese culture, and, and you know, and they could understand it. You know, and so I, I think that when, when we're just having occasional or less frequent interaction with people from other cultures, it may t- take, take some special effort. You know, names are important. How we refer to people, how can we make people feel comfortable, then that can help everyone have just a, a, a better experience. And, and generally, I'd also just say that in, in my experience with my international colleagues is just that these were these were people... That I just really enjoyed interacting with a, a great deal. I had a, a lot of respect for them, a lot of fondness for them, and I'm really I'm happy that I've had the experience to interact with them and, and my and, and where I am now, I don't have that, which just kind of heightens a little bit more just um, how cool all those experiences were. Great well, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome.
0: For more information about global business and culture, visit www.internationalhub.org and be sure to subscribe to our podcast.